Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins, and we're really excited to have Dr. Keisha Ray here, who has recently published a book, Black Health, The Social, Political and Cultural Determinants of Black People's Health. So a big welcome, Keisha. Um, Dr. Ray received her PhD in philosophy with a focus on bioethics from the University of Utah, and she's currently an assistant professor with the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at UT Health Houston, where she also serves as a director of the Medical Humanities Scholarly Concentration, and she has recently received tenure. Most of Dr. Ray's work focuses on the effects of institutional racism on black people's health, highlighting black people's own stories in black health discourse and the socio-political implications of biomedical enhancement for marginalized populations. Her work uniquely prioritizes simple language as a matter of access and justice. Dr. Ray serves as an associate editor for the American Journal of Bioethics and media editor for its blog site, Bioethics Today, to which she is a regular contributor. She's contributed to top clinical bioethics and medical humanities journals as well. Based on her expertise, Dr. Ray is also frequently called upon as a bioethics expert for popular news sources. So a big, big welcome, Dr. Ray, and many congratulations on your amazing book. Can you tell us how this book came about? Right. So Black Health came about mostly out of a desire to have a succinct, easily readable text that I can use to teach students about racial disparities in healthcare and health outcomes, black people's health, and in general about the social determinants of health and how racism and other forms of discrimination affect people's access to the social determinants of health. And more personally, I've had my own issues with medical racism family members and friends as well. They have always told me stories about racist clinicians or um, tell me different stories about not having what they need to make sure that they have good health outcomes, like not having transportation to get to the pharmacy where they can pick up their prescription drugs or not having transportation to get to their doctor's appointments or not having money to pay fees to see their doctor or not even having access to quality foods because there's no grocery stores that sell affordable food in their neighborhoods. So when I hear all of these stories and I think about all of these experiences of black people that I've met and then look at my own experiences with uh, illness or with biased clinicians, I really wanted students, especially students who are going into the health sciences that will be nurses, dentists, doctors, that kind of thing, to really know about all of the issues that affect black people before they even get into the clinic. And maybe that will help them be a little bit more empathetic to black people's state of health. So it really came out of just this need to teach people about black people's health, but do it in a very simple, easily understandable way. So that way it can be used in the classrooms at the undergraduate high school level and really just anyone who wants to learn a little bit more. 
And just for our audience, for those who do not understand the concept of um, the social determinants of health, can you just explain, uh, you know, what what is it, um, you know, just a simple definition for those that are not familiar with that um, topic? Right. So the social determinants of health are those non-biological but social, environmental, political, cultural, even commercial entities in our lives that have effect on our health. So things like housing, access to transportation, access to food, access to um, good childhood experiences, access to walkable neighborhoods and recreation, access to healthcare, access to food stores, all of those things, if we have access to them, have a great effect on us having good health. And when we don't have access to those things, there's a great impact on our health in a negative way. And for many scholars, many clinicians have found that social determinants of health are a greater determinant of our health than your biology or your genetics or even sometimes your access to doctors. But how you live your life and the environment around you, your social, political, and cultural environment has a great impact on how healthy you can expect to be. Um, so to uh, dive in um, to your awesome book, and I highly suggest everyone to uh, cop that copy. It's uh, called, and let me get this right here, uh, Black Health, the Social, Political, and Cultural Determinants of Black People's Health, um, Bioethics uh, for Social Justice by, of course, our uh, guest, guest uh, speaker today, Keisha Ray. Available in Oxford uh, through its publishing, but also uh, I believe it's available wherever books are sold. So please, please, please do yourself a favor, educate yourself, empower yourself, and buy uh, Dr. Ray's book. Uh, so I wanted to add that not so shameless plug uh, before I uh, answer or ask this question to you rather. Um, so I know that there are different terms and themes throughout the book. Um, interpersonal racism, institutional racism, and systemic racism. Uh, and I know a majority of folks don't understand that there are distinctions, uh, similarities, but distinctions in these different terms under the huge umbrella of racism. Uh, can you please uh, distinguish what these three types of racism are and how it impacts um, you know, communities of color's health. Absolutely, first appreciate the shameless plug. Um, so for me, you know, I am a trained philosopher. So one of the things that is a part of just being a philosopher is making sure that people are on the same page when you're talking about terms. Because a lot of times people have disagreements, you have arguments and you realize it's because we're using the same words, but we have very different intentions and meanings behind those words. So it was super important to me to use the introduction of the book to just say, here are these basic terms. People use them in different ways. Here's how I'm using them. Here's somehow other scholars have used them and I'm using it in this way throughout the book. So when you, when I, when you see the term structural racism, you know what I mean. So interpersonal racism, again, my definition and then using other scholars definition is that sort of everyday racism where it's verbal, where someone says a racial slur or someone follows you around a very nice and posh store because they think you're going to steal because of this color of your skin. Interpersonal racism is that racism that you have at the individual level between people. That is what I mean by that. 
by institutional racism, I mean when institutions like our housing, our education systems, our banking systems, our political systems, when they make policies that unfairly disadvantage people because of skin color and advantage other people because of their skin color. So disadvantaging people, black and brown skin, advantaging white people. Um, institutional racism is, is <clears throat> interesting. Institutional racism is interesting because it is so built into systems that sometimes people don't see it. And also it's not about individuals. You can have all the people working for an education system be not racist or be barely racist and yet the institution can still be racist because it's about the policies it's about the practices it's about the behaviors of the institution as a whole not the individual people that make it up structural racism is sort of the totality of it all i kind of think of it as the sum right it's all of the ways that our society disadvantages people based on skin color, advantages others, but promotes discrimination based on skin color in our everyday lives and our policies and in our institutions and in the kinds of people and representation we see on TV and in movies. So systemic racism is sort of the compilation. It's all of it together and how that affects people's access to resources. And in particular, when I'm using it here is how it affects people's resources um, for proper health or the re how it affects people's resources that they need for proper health. No, thank you. Um, because um, a lot of it, or a lot of times rather, individuals think they know or understanding of a particular term and they don't. Um, so it's very important to have these distinctions in order to garner more knowledge of um, all of these different types of racism and how it's connected to uh, communities of health. Um, one last question before, um, of course, uh, uh, my colleague and friend, um, as you all know, Amelia uh, chimes in, is uh, really, why did you write the book? And um, I know that, obviously, the reason why you spend all this time and effort uh, is because this is a very important topic to you. Uh, so my question is, uh, why did you write the book and who do you hope will read your book in order to garner um, change in uh, people of color's health? I mostly wrote the book because I got tired of people moralizing black people's health and making it an issue of just bad behavior or poor behavior or not caring and saying things like, well, black people could have better health if they weren't lazy, if they got a better job, if they, they made it an individual problem, they made it a problem for black people and saying they aren't doing something and that is why they have generally poorer health than other races. So they were making it a matter of morally, more, they were making it a matter of morality. They were pathogenizing black people rather than pathogenizing the environments that black people live in. And so I wanted to do this expose, this sort of idea of, let's look at where black people live. Let's look at the kind of lives that they live. Let's look at who they are living around, the kinds of things that they have to encounter in their daily life that deteriorate their physical health, their mental health, their spiritual and their emotional health. And let's look at how that then affects their health. So we can only make the kinds of choices that are good for our health if we have access to resources and the circumstances that allow us 
to make good decisions. So that's one of those reasons why I hear a lot of the time the term lifestyle choices and I get very annoyed because we can only make good choices insofar as we have the opportunity to make good choices. And so with Black Health, I really wanted to look at how do we make sure that we have more opportunities for good health? What do Black people need so that way they can have good health? And again, I didn't want to take away agency from black people. Black people can make bad choices about their health just like anyone else. But again, let's look at the context of how we make choices, the what we have that is allowing us to make certain choices, and then those uh, environmental factors and social factors and political factors that limits the kinds of choices that are available to black people. So I really wrote this book so people can be a little bit more compassionate, but compassionate through an understanding of all of the ways that our world says black people don't deserve to have good health and we're not gonna do anything to make sure that they have it. And so I really wrote it for people who just lack an understanding and really for people who want to know more, but then also people who need to know more because they will have direct influence on Black people's health. And that is clinicians, practitioners, people who are in the sciences, researchers, people who will interact with Black people and who can influence their good health or their poor health. Because we can all either contribute to anti-Black racism and health and health outcomes or we can be working to dismantle it. And I always want people to pick a side. And of course, I hope that they pick the side of dismantling. And I wanted to give them a tool that they can use that's easy to understand, that is readable, that is short, and there's something that they can talk about with their friends and their colleagues and students and other learners. Thank you for clarifying that. I mean, I do think the book is really readable and accessible for people, so I hope um lots of people read it and learn. So in your book, you have four main chapters and you discuss maternal mortality rates, treatment of pain, cardiovascular disease and sleep. So why did you decide to focus on these four issues of all the issues facing black Americans today? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting question because it's something throughout writing the book that I kept asking myself why these topics and I started doing a research on all of the areas where black people have poor health outcomes. So that was cancer, diabetes, all of these other topics, including the ones in the book. And I picked these because these were the ones where they were the most stark and the most appalling to me. Where you would, and also I picked these topics because they were the most preventable. And that was what made it most stark and made it more appalling to me is that it's so easy to prevent poor health outcomes in cardiovascular disease, in maternal mortality, in pain management, and in sleep, if people have the things that they need, right? And so it's, and also I picked these because nothing has shown us that it is inherent in black people to have poor health outcomes in these areas, that it is almost entirely social. And if we were to fix our social environments, then my book would not need to exist. These chapters wouldn't be something that reflect black people's experiences. And on a more personal note, again, this book is, is personal to me because I've also had these experiences. 
I have had insomnia and trouble sleeping since around high school. I have had my own cardiovascular disease. I have hypertension. I have family members who have died from cardiovascular disease. Um, I have had my own pain management issues with clinicians where my pain wasn't believed or I was accused of drug seeking um, until another clinician came and believed me and actually helped treat me. Although I've never been pregnant or birthed a child, I have had women's health issues that required serious intervention and luckily had doctors that were willing to help. And so all of these chapters are personal to me, but I also saw my family and my friends and other black people in these chapters. I saw the social media stories in these chapters. So I see myself in this book, but then I also see other black people in this book as well. And so I wanted to focus on these chapters and maybe one day I'll focus on, on other things, but also these chapters, these topics, excuse me, also these topics reflect a totality of social determinants of health that there are so many social determinants of health that are involved in those four topics from housing to income to environmental injustices to access to clean air and clean water to access to food and healthy grocery stores and so these were the ones that i thought showed the most totality of just how much not having the social determinants of health can affect an entire population's health and individual's health. And the the differences you describe in the maternal mortality rates um, are also not entirely linked, though, to social determinants of health. You also outlined um, some cases of uh, educated women, you know, living in in nice neighborhoods, having access to insurance, being able to attend good hospitals also having an impact. So can you um, outline that a bit more for us? Yeah, so for me, I do think of those ideas as social because they're not related to inherent uh, bodies or they're not, they're not inherent to your body's not functioning properly. So I see access to insurance, access to proper housing, access to prenatal care, access to physicians who are socially aware of these issues as social issues as well. And so for me, black birthing mortality is one of those issues where, although I have never experienced it personally, whenever you keep hearing stories about black people dying during or soon after birth, um, it, it just becomes so heartbreaking. Just recently, we, we saw the story of a track star who died alone in her home while giving birth, a black woman. And so when you keep hearing these stories happen over and over, where you have women that are educated, that have very good jobs, that have social support systems, ha have all the things on paper that would tell us they should have the best of health care and the best health outcomes because they can afford it, they have access to it. And when they still die, and they still die in the same ways that uneducated women, uh, white women, or uneducated um, white women who only have high school diplomas, right, when they're dying at the same rate, when women who have professional degrees that are black die at the same rate as women, white women who have only high school diplomas, you start to see that it's not a matter of education, it's not a matter always of income, but that there's something else going on. And that's why this book talks about how racism and other forms of discrimination intersect with black people's identities and that affects their relationship with institutions that then affects their health outcomes. So it's not just about do I have the resources I need, 
It's how do clinicians treat me? How do clinicians see me? Do they view me as a whole person that's worthy of care and compassion? Do they view me as a person that wants to go home to my family and to my friends with my child, right? And so I think that particular topic shows that it's not just about social determinants of health, but how racism is itself a social determinant of health, but also how it flows through and affects everyone's access to the other social determinants of health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so so with with your responses, of course, it's of course the social determinants of health, but also there's um, social, behavioral, and also psychological implications that also need to be um, examined more thoroughly on why healthcare providers, whether um, for the most part, I'm sure it's um, implicit, they don't do it on purpose, but what social dynamics continue to produce the same bad health outcomes, right? Uh, and then when you talk about that, that's when sensitivity and the uncomfortable conversations come into play. And usually because of that, instead of actually tapping into the discomfort, we, you know, leap over it and we avoid it. And, and again, these, these uh, issues continue to perpetuate themselves um, within communities of color. Um, so in your book, I know that you mentioned uh, about uh, sleep issues um, and sleep apnea. And you mentioned that uh, that was something that personally uh, plagued you. Uh, why is sleep important in regards to uh, bioethics and social justice? It's not really a topic that we actually talk about um, at all, or if we do, it's a rarity in our conversations. Uh, so what does sleep actually have to do and sleep issues have to do with health, but also related to uh, health disparities? Right. This is one of those instances where I hope that bioethics learns a little bit more from our other disciplines and the behavioral sciences and sociology they talk a lot about sleep there's academic sleep journals there's a lot of academic scholarship and clinical work being done on racial disparities in sleep and it's because sleep is a big determinant of how healthy you are in other areas and that's one reason why i included it sleep especially could tell us a lot about your cardiovascular health it can tell us a lot about your stress levels. It can tell us a lot about your mental health. And so if you find out through the research, which is true that black people sleep less, get less quantity and lesser quality of sleep than other people, then it sort of gives you this aha moment. Like, oh, okay, well, no wonder why they also have higher rates of cardiovascular disease. No wonder why there's also higher rates of um, sleep apnea. No wonder why there's higher rates of hypertension and things like that that have been shown to be linked to the kind of sleep. It also says no wonder why there's racial disparities even in dementia and Alzheimer's because sleep is a determinant of your or can be a determinant of your experiences with Alzheimer's disease. Even with mental health, no wonder why there's disparities in mental health, because if people aren't sleeping, it tells us so much about all of your other outcomes in these other health areas. And so for me, sleep also 
means you can't enjoy life if you're tired which we've all have been you don't want to do your hobbies you don't feel like taking your dog out for a walk you don't feel like going out to dinner with your partner right all the things that you like to do whether that's knitting or sewing or gardening or whatever if you're tired all you want to do is sleep and then if you can't even get good sleep you're kind of like a zombie and you can't do the things that you like to do and even while i was writing this book having issues with sleeping this book was delayed. This book should have come out a lot sooner, but I was dealing with my own sleepless nights. I was dealing with my own health issues, right? And so it really just highlighted to me how important sleep is and how little we talk about it in bioethics, but how it's sort of like this sort of like undercover agent, this underlying topic in a lot of the other topics that we talk about. And so I really want us to look at the interdisciplinary nature that is inherent in bioethics and start learning from these other disciplines because they talk about sleep a lot. And I think it's something we need to talk a lot more about, especially in relation to environmental racism, in relation to income. If you're working a bunch of jobs to feed your family, if you're working the late shift, if you're worried about, I live in a bad neighborhood or in a neighborhood that has a lot of crime and I'm worried about my children sleeping at night, if you live in a neighborhood that's noisy or has light pollution, yeah, it's gonna affect your sleep. And then that then can affect your health. It can affect how soon you die, if you die a premature death. And so these are all of the things that I would wish bioethicists to talk about more and to talk about the importance of sleep and who's getting it and who's not. No, indeed. And um, speaking about um, air pollution, uh, we recently in the Northeast, uh, due to the uh, Canada wildfires um, early in June, where it's not as hot, um, past few days really had bad, bad air quality. Um, And it really brought home to our uh, friends and colleagues that are in California who deal with this on on a daily or weekly basis, right? And of course, that also impacts one's sleep, you know, because sleep is very restorative. And if you don't have time to rest your body and restore your body in, you know, mind, body, and spirit, um, obviously that's going to lead to other health uh, consequences and issues. So that is very pertinent as well. Um, Very intriguing, very intriguing. Uh, uh, My last question, uh, again, before I turn it over to Amelia, is you explained a term, uh, and no pun intended since we're talking about the weather, but you, t- you, you coined the term weathering, right? So what is weathering and how is it relevant to us? Uh, us as you know, individuals, as communities, but also us as uh, people of color. Right, so scholars have introduced the term weathering and talking about it in the sense of what happens to our body and to our mental health when we don't have the things that we need for proper health, when we have a series of disadvantages. And so weathering, um, if you look at the literature, they talk a lot about this example of a piece of paper. If you had just a plain white piece of paper, maybe from your copy machine, do we, if we still have copiers and we still have printers, uh, if you leave it outside for a year, and then you come back to that paper after a year, what would that paper look like? A dog could have stepped on it, would have got rained on, maybe some snow, the sun will fade it, right? That paper will not look like the original clean white sheet of paper that you put out there a year ago. And that is similar to our bodies and to our minds and to our spirits. When you experience disadvantages over and over and over, not having what you need for proper health, 
your body is weathered your body deteriorates and one mechanism for deterioration of our bodies and minds is stress if you don't have what you need to feed your family you feed yourself have proper housing transportation access to education political and social stability all of those things weather you and deteriorate you and it can be via stress that pathway and we found that with weathering and with excessive stress stress that literally the telomeres the end of our cells deteriorate faster and that contributes to premature mortality and we know that black people die sooner than other races particularly black men have the lowest rates i mean the highest rates of premature mortality and so weathering related to black birthing mortality is weathering can be passed on to the fetus when a person is pregnant and they are experiencing different stressors that effects of stress can be passed on to their child and can have bad health outcomes for the fetus whether premature birth or dying after birth and so it's very important to think about how do we pass on the effects of racism to different generations how are our fetus even before they are born affected by racism and now weathering can happen to anyone you don't have to be a pregnant person to experience weathering but when you look at who doesn't have access to the social terms of health and how that contributes to weathering you can't help but see that it's disparate effects of weathering on different races that weathering falls along racial lines um i just wanted to ask a little bit about you point out in your book um as we were seeing the disproportionate um negative outcomes from covid and worse mortality and worse morbidity outcomes among black populations there was still a lot of research that was chasing various sort of theories um you know, related to some biological mechanism rather than um, sort of examining the social determinants of health as being the potential underlying uh, cause. So can you elaborate on the example that you gave? Right. So in general, I find that there are a lot of researchers who still want to deny the social impact that our lives can have on our health and that they want to find some biological answer. And I don't always think it's for malicious reasons. Sometimes I do. I think they want to blame people for their poor health. And then also that means that they don't have to put money and resources into the real problem, into social um, social benefits or to changing our, our social environment that will then produce better health outcomes. And so with COVID, you see the same thing. There are a lot of researchers still to this day that are trying to find something biologically wrong with black, Latinx, indigenous people to explain their higher rates of COVID. They'll say maybe it's something in the nasal passageway that makes them more susceptible to inhaling the virus. Um, maybe there's something inherent in their, their culture, right? Maybe they don't wash their hands as much. Maybe that is something against what they do. And so you, you keep trying to find all of these reasons, but again, the research just doesn't support it. It's almost like they're, they're just sort of pulling at straws to blame people, to moralize black people's experiences with COVID-19 and the pandemic, rather than saying, well, let's look at our infrastructure. Let's look at income. Let's look at housing. Let's look at access to healthcare. Let's look at what people have and don't have that contributed to their higher rates of COVID-19 mortality and, and infections and hospitalizations. And so that is one example that I've seen a lot is the, 
the idea that there is a difference in the anatomy of black people. And again, that's very reminiscent of how physicians used to write about enslaved Africans in health journals, that there's something inherently different about their bodies and their minds that make them suitable to be enslaved. And so a lot of the times when you start to do this history lesson and when you hear about current things like nasal passages, you, it's very reminiscent of how people used to talk about enslaved black people. So you see this sort of repackaging of medical racism where it's not super blatant, but it is still impactful. So agree. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Um, you do suggest some solutions in your book. And so can you share some of your, your suggested solutions? once we've educated everybody on this, these issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, I, I talk about a few, again, it, the intention was to keep the book short. I did write this for undergrads and anyone who's taught an undergrad or been an undergrad knows you don't wanna do a whole lot of reading, you have a lot to do. So I didn't include all of the solutions that have been proposed or all of the ones I could think about. But for some, like birthing mortality, using doulas and midwives more, making them affordable, making our insurances cover those costs so that way it's more accessible to people. But just not medicalizing birth and acknowledging that not all births need to happen in a hospital for them to be safe. Um, also thinking about policies. How do we educate clinicians who are directly responsible uh, for delivering children and for being gatekeepers of healthcare? How do we make sure that people take them seriously and make sure that they come out alive. How do we make sure that black people are seen as fully human beings worthy of life to people who need to, you know, unfortunately be convinced of that. When we're talking about pain management, you hear a lot of people talk about racially concordant care or race matching. I've published on the topic myself, thinking about matching black patients with black physicians in the hopes that they will be seen as, again, more fully human. Now there's problems with racially concordant care. There's just not enough black physicians to go around. There's only 5% of physicians are black in the US. And also we wanna make sure that all physicians are culturally competent and can care for any person regardless of their race. But we can't deny that research has shown us that they have positive outcomes when black patients are matched with black physicians. Even when women patients are matched with women physicians, they have better health outcomes in cardiovascular disease and, and heart attacks and strokes and that kind of thing. And so there's pros and cons with the solutions, but I think ultimately it's a matter of how do we make sure people have the resources? How do we reform education? How do we reform housing? How do we raise the minimum wage? How do we make sure that people have social support? Because that's really what will ultimately change black people's health is making sure they have the resources that they need to be conducive to having good health. Oh yeah, absolutely, very important. Um solutions um but i think the elephant in the room is and allow me to play a devil's advocate um just for a brief moment is that our healthcare system inherently is a profit a for-profit system it's a business right and unfortunately the best intended uh, physicians nurses healthcare professionals unfortunately get sucked into this particular structure um, and there's been a lot of um, not just writings on this and research, but also personal testimonies through writing, video, 
of, of practitioners at every different levels that they said, yeah, the care is being lost because of the structures of how they get paid, because of the structures of insurance um, and the systems that be currently within our society of uh, on how we care for ourselves and care for our loved ones. Um, what are your thoughts on, and I know this is a heavily weighted question, um, but what are your thoughts on actually having uh, universal health care or some type of health care that everyone has access to? Right. Health care is a business, but I think we have to think about it a little bit differently, and that's a problem because it's a, it's a business that everyone needs or will need at some point in their life and has a great impact on how healthy that they are. But again, access to healthcare is a very small percentage of our health deter- or our determining our health, right? Some people say it's only 20% of the kind of health outcomes that we expect to have, that this social aspect is really what determines our health. But if we're gonna focus on healthcare, which does need some reformation, I think there's a sort of two-pronged things that we have to do. One, as a medical educator, educator, as a medical educator, I think that we have to do a little bit more work on the education side when we're talking to future clinicians, how medical schools produce students and spit them out into a world and say, now go on and be great. That has to change a little bit how we're thinking about black health, how we teach them, what does it mean for black people to have um, disparate health outcomes. And then also on the actual business, on the medical insurance side, um, I do believe in universal healthcare. I do think that that is one way that people will be seen as fully deserving of good health outcomes because one, it would be a policy change, which I think that is how you get change and that's how you get change faster and it's how you get change Uh, where there's consequences if you don't follow suit. And I think that that is super important. So yeah, I do think universal healthcare is is a solution. I do think there are different types of universal healthcare um, and maybe there have to be some sort of policies in there that make sure that we're sort of rectifying because now if we were to have universal healthcare tomorrow, it's still built on, the healthcare institution is still built on black people's backs. It is still built on a legacy of enslavement, still built on a legacy of colonization. So we would still be sort of, at least for a little while, putting a bandaid on a problem, putting, what's that fame, I'm from the South, that famous saying, uh, put lipstick on a pig, right? It would be great and it would help a lot, but we would still have to reckon with the effects of the past. And so that's why I think if we did universal health care, ours would be a little bit different than other countries, at least for a little while, at least for the beginning. Great. Thank you. Um, and my follow up question is, um, and I know this is a heavily weighted question as well. How how does the medical community, the medical establishment reckon the past? Um, because in in my experience, there's really hasn't been an official acknowledgement of the the medical racisms, the the transgressions of our past. And in order for you to fix something, you have to acknowledge it exists in the first place. And institutionally, um, at least in my knowledge, you could correct me if I'm wrong, that has not actually happened yet um, for whatever reason that may, or reasons that may be. So what are your suggestions in reckoning and actually being comfortable, being uncomfortable, if you will, um, in regards to 
uh, all of the topics we discussed in our interview, but just overall the acknowledgement of what has been done for uh, the past, you know, few hundred years? Yeah, good question. So I always, whenever I talk about this kind of question and what can healthcare institutions do, what can public health institutions do, I do think, like you said, it has to start with acknowledging. And some institutions have, like the CDC, the APHA, public health, right? Um, even the American Medical Association have first acknowledged their participation in black people's poor health. And I think like you said, if you don't state the problem, then you can't fix the problem. But it has to go beyond that because that can easily just be lip service, right? It can easily just be, how do I appease people in this moment of racial reckoning and then go back to just doing the same old, same old thing, right? And so acknowledgement has to then be followed up with practices. It has to be followed up with commitments and concerted efforts, but then also checks and balances, making sure that these institutions, when they say we are going to implement these changes that they actually do, and then also that the people who have the skills are measuring the impact of those changes because you're going to want evidence-based research because that is what talks to people. You can't just say, oh, this helped a few people. That's, that's not going to be good enough. We have to actually have measurements. We have to measure the outcomes and see if they're successful. And so I do think there has to be an acknowledgement um, and an apology too, and then also a commitment to change. How are you fixing this for the people going forward? And how do you make sure that the people who were affected by this are compensated in some kind of way? Agree, thank you. Um, so this is kind of just a sort of different type of question, but you're a philosopher but by training. So was it difficult to pivot to kind of writing this type of book? Um, and are you planning any more books? Yeah, you know, it wasn't difficult because I've always written in a very plain speak way. I will say what was difficult as a trained philosopher is being more comfortable with it. When I was training and in grad school, you know, people would make comments and the assumption is if you write in plain speak, if you write in a way where everybody can read it, that you're not as smart, that if you don't use the big words and the jargon, and then at being a black woman, you're already dealing with people thinking you're not as smart or maybe you don't belong in a PhD program. And so for me, it was more of a struggle to accept that this is my calling and that this is something I wanna do rather than changing the way that I write. I've always written like this. Even my philosophy articles are written in a very accessible manner because it's something that I came into this profession knowing that I wanted to do. I wanted everyone to have access to philosophy and to bioethics and to academia. And so it wasn't it wasn't too super hard for me, but again, it is something that I had to accept that this is who I am and people are going to think less of me for writing an accessible way and I just don't care, you know, that that's just how it's going to be. Right now I am editing another book and it is about young physicians, residents and fellows and them telling their stories about different life events that happened to them during their training. So they're talking about um, their colleagues dying by suicide, dealing with parents dying by suicide, trying to date while a fellow, dealing with their own um, sort of spiritual journey as a physician. Uh, dealing with different racial reckonings and protests that were happening as a black physician, dealing with imposter syndrome. So it's talking about all these very real topics that young 
trainees experience while they're training um, to be MDs and just how they have a very real life, but at the same time, they're also trying to be a part of this profession that is very grueling and demanding of them. And so, yeah, that one um, should be coming out in 2024. Well, keep us posted on, you know, your book was fabulous and I hope loads of people read it and um, I'll definitely be um, promoting it among the groups I'm in. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm using it uh, for my courses in the future as well. So um, thank you. I appreciate it. And that's exactly what I wrote it for. I think this is a great book for students. It's very much an introduction level, but also has a lot of knowledge. But then it's told through stories. And I think the stories are memorable. And that's what people remember is how these topics affect very real people. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.